Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Vancouver Council hikes licensing fees for short-term rentals by 800%. Will it have any impact on the rental market? Plus, with a shortfall in the thousands when it comes to housing in BC, will removing GST on new rental housing builds actually matter? Plus, we'll continue our focus on the impact international students are having on our post-secondary institutions. And our Jerry Merritt Judson reviews Premier David Eby's 2008 album, Makeout Music. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. First, let's talk short-term rentals with concerns about the impact Airbnb and other short-term rentals were having on the local rental market. Vancouver's council approved increasing the rental licensing fee from the current $109 uh, to $1,000 in 2024 in hopes that it can stop illegal short-term rentals uh, in the city. Uh, The increase would also generate about $2.7 million. Now, Lenny Zhao, who is an ABC City Council, spoke to our Mike Smith earlier today and spoke specifically on the increase uh, of the $1,000 fee and the difference it could make. Take a listen. This additional revenue generated from the uh, increased license fees will enhance our enforcement efforts by hiring more inspectors or the uh, enforcement officers could help us enhance our capability to identify and address these non-compliant short-term rental operations. It could also help us you know, invest data analytics tools and advanced technology that could make the enforcement process more efficient. You know, we can easily track and communicate with these illegal short-term rental operators. I think also very important, it could help us support public engagement and the public education. You know, I think uh, we can raise the awareness of these short-term rental regulation and their consequences. That was uh, ABC Council Lenny Zhao from uh, earlier today. Joining me now is Pete Fry. He's a city councillor uh, with the Green Party right here in Vancouver. Councillor Fry, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jazz, good to be here. i so, got to say, I'm super stoked on your show coming up, though. I mean, the Dave Eby album review sounds I do, amazing. I'm very, I'm very and, and that GST is big news. That's yes. a really big deal, and I'm yeah, excited yeah. to hear about no, that. It, but, you know, it's, it, it does speak to, I think, the collective will of municipal, provincial, and federal elected officials that... Housing is the issue. When you talk about housing and affordability, I think we're all figuring it out. Uh, and we could talk on this later, but it took us a long time to get into this mess. It's going to take a little bit of time to get out of it, too. Right? It sure will. Yeah. And that's a challenge. But let's talk about short-term rentals, first and foremost. Uh, this uh, increase to $1,000 in regards to licensing from 109 is this going to have any impact in your mind? You know, it's it, it did come a little bit out of left field. Um and I did vote to support it. Staff were recommending moving the dial. Uh, short-term li- right licenses were $109. They were suggesting moving it up to $450. All the long, all the while, uh, staff have been, because I've brought this up before in the last term, staff have been reluctant to increase the fees too much because they're worried that folks will just not get a license at all. Because as we know, uh, the MOU with Airbnb right now is kind of, uh, it's voluntary. There's no mandate to put a license on your Airbnb listing. So folks don't actually have to, necessarily get a license. And certainly the license doesn't apply at all to platforms like VRBO or WeChat. 
So there is the concern that putting the license at too high a bar is going to drive people underground. And hmm. it makes it that much more challenging, obviously, to do enforcement. So I think that, you know, if, if it generates enough revenue, if we're assuming that every single person who has a license will willingly move from $109 to $1,000 and keep going with their Airbnb, mm-hmm. um, then we'll have a bunch of revenue to invest in enforcement. And I think there are tools that we could explore that could actually make short-term rentals, Airbnb or not, uh, a little bit better scrutinized here in the city of Vancouver. Uh, you talked about more enforcement, but there's so many, um, obviously, locations in the city. Is this beyond the city scope, just in regards to enforcing it? I mean, you can talk about hiring 10 more enforcement officers, let's say. I'm pulling that number out of the air. But there's so many residents, residences. It seems to me that you almost need some a higher level of government to really come down on the exact rules in regards to what we're going to allow and what we're not going to allow. Yeah, and we are expecting some new provincial legislation this fall. And certainly, you know, if I put my UBCM hat on and I'm a director on the Union of BC Municipalities, smaller communities don't have the resources to do that level of enforcement. So they're struggling with these same issues. And I can tell you that short-term rentals in a small community are even more impactful when when they're denying that community affordable rental housing because folks realize I could make a lot more money Airbnb being this out to vacationers. And mm-hmm. so we know it's a real problem in smaller communities and they won't have the bylaw officers or the resources to do this themselves. So we're expecting the provincial legislation coming forward to add some kind of uh, increased enforcement or some kind of auditing tool or something to really better insulate communities from short-term rentals. Uh, this is a specific to Vancouver uh, issue, but uh, why not just ban it outright? Well, I mean, we haven't had that conversation, but I can tell you that we don't have the hotel rooms necessarily to accommodate all the visitors we have in the high season. But is that your problem? I mean, if you say, I mean, I'm, once again, communities, one would argue, are for local people. We live here. uh, The rules should be built for us, not the average visitor. I understand the visitors bring lots of dollars and employment from restaurants to taxis to everything. But communities still focus should, should the focus should be on local people. So why not ban it? Let the hotel industry and higher levels of governments, because Victoria, figure out the land issues. We need more. I think a thousand more hotel rooms. The region does figure that out. But don't take it. Don't let it impact local people. Yeah, you know, I agree with you, and I, I think we probably should never have licensed it in the first place. Yet here we are. And if you remember when Airbnb first came out, the idea was like you're going on vacation for two weeks and you're renting out your place while you're gone. Mm-hmm. That was the original kind of notion of Airbnb, and I think that was the context in which. Uh, Vision Vancouver at the time created this licensing and this MOU with Airbnb. Obviously, it's not the case now. We know that there's tons of folks who are just like buying properties for the sole purpose of running them as an Airbnb, which is completely mm-hmm. illegal and, and non-consistent with, with our existing bylaws. Um, but here we are. They are in the sort of hotel ecosystem continuum. Mm-hmm. And we know that we've lost so many of our mid-range kind of hotel offerings over covid a lot of them just mm-hmm. went out of business, sold their properties to the province to now run as, as shelter for folks who are experiencing homelessness. So if you look at the hotel market right now, they're pretty expensive to get a room in Vancouver. You know, if you're looking at one of the big hotels, it's, oh, I don't even know what the numbers are, but they're beyond my paycheck. So we need some kind of mid-range hotel offerings or accommodation offerings for folks in the city. That's that's a, that's a thing. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, tourism is still a big part of our industry. So if we're going to get rid of Airbnbs, then we really do need some kind of landing for what we're going to do for accommodation in the city. And it's a complicated equation. We are speaking to Pete Fries, the city councillor uh, here in Vancouver with the Green Party. We're talking about Vancouver City Council voting to uh, raise short-term rental fees to $1,000 from the 104. That's the licensing fee. Um, councillor Fry, I'm very curious, uh, for those people who treat this like a business, when you, um, you, know, you rent out a suite, let's say, 
for $3,000 a month for a one-bedroom. Yet these Airbnb folks, uh, let's say, would make $4,500 from that suite, so a net profit of $1,500 per month. And I've heard stories of people, there's four or five of these suites that they would rent. Like, you're not going to stop that be- uh, that type of business, would you, with with, with the change, with, with the licensing fee I now? mean, I think we could be a lot more assertive with, with our auditing and, and enforcement. I mean, you look on the Airbnb, and you'll find what they call super hosts on Airbnb, and they have multiple properties that they're renting out. And, you know, it, it becomes very obvious that they have bought multiple units in the same building. And we were talking in the break about uh, some of the condos down around the stadium area in International Village. And there's buildings there that are just chock-a-block with Airbnbs because it's proximity to the stadium. So you can come down for a Canucks game or a Beyonce concert or whatever, make a weekend mm-hmm. of it, have a party, have, you know, like have a place to stay. And so the residents who actually live there complain that the strata board's taken over by Airbnb operators who want to keep it just the way it is. They complain that, you know, there's guys throwing up in the elevator or smoking doobies on the on the patio and disrespecting the building because they're just there to have a good time. And, you know, it's right by the stadium. So obviously that they will be having a good time. Yeah. But it doesn't make for a great residence for folks who are actually purchasing a home to live in. No. So uh, I'm sure you're you're waiting, as you say, from, for provincial legislation in this uh, fall uh, fall session yeah. coming soon. All right. Well, let's give it, go to our open line. Give us a call, 604-280-9898, star 9898 uh, on your cell phone. Love to hear from you if you are an Airbnb operator or do you think this is enough in regards to raising uh, licensing fees? Because we still do have, as uh, Councillor Fry said, a shortage of hotels here in the Lower Mainland. I think the number was about 1,500 short uh, that we need for this t- for this market here uh, in the Lower Mainland. Uh, let's go to Matt in West Vancouver. Hi, Matt. Hey, how you doing, guys? I'm good, doing uh, well. Just a, quick thing, just a quick thing from somebody who's, uh, I am an Airbnb operator myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the operation that we have, it's not actually a rentable, like long-term rentable unit. It's more like a nanny suite. There's no kitchen mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. So it's a, you know, it sort of goes with, I think, the idea that the uh, Vancouver City Council's had for a while. But I think people need to look at this from a different perspective. Like, you guys are constantly talking about, you know, these multiple, and there obviously are out there people that are operating, you know, 20, 30 Airbnbs and stuff like that. But what you need to realize is the majority of Airbnb hosts are people that need this income to keep themselves going, myself included. Mm-hmm. So if we don't if we don't have this Airbnb income coming in, we're going to be homeless. So, you know, it's very expensive that we can all imagine here in the city, but it's just constantly like, oh, how are we going to get more homes? Let's shut down Airbnb. Let's tax Airbnb more and more. And it's people are actually doing Airbnb, not necessarily because they want to. It's not the, the greatest experience to have people living within your own house, but people are doing it because they need to do this to afford that. And that's simply why I wanted to call in because it's just being painted with such a negative brush and it's all these capitalists and all that. And although I agree with capitalism and all that, I don't think it's, if I buy a condo, I don't believe it's my job to rent that out. I think that's just uh, a very, you know, naive way of looking at things. Matt, I'm, to- Matt, I'm curious. Would you be comfortable just telling us how much you would make, like, clear in a month uh, as you rent the, your uh, nanny suite out for Airbnb? Well, I mean, it, it fluctuates, right? So yeah. summer would be your best month. So you could get anywhere from 100 to which is pretty good. And it's, Sorry, uh, we missed you. Know, you. You cut out there. What was the price? Uh, what would you make? Uh, about, uh, you'd be looking at about 100 to $200 a night, I'd say. Okay. And you'd be, you, you know, in summer, you'd be occupied 100% of the time. Now, you know, in, in October or February or something like that, the price mm-hmm. obviously fluctuates as does the occupancy. And there's a lot of work involved. And the other angle to this is like you sort of alluded to before the commercial break, is there's a shortage of, of, uh, of hotel units. 
So if you all of a sudden just stop Airbnb or tax it or make it to some some point where people, it's no longer economical for them to run it, where are all these tourists going to stay? You understand when these tourists come, where are they eating? They're not eating the place that I live because there's no kitchen there. Yeah. They're going out. They're going into tourism places. They're spending money. Matt, you thank you. I appreciate the call. <laughs> Sorry to me to cut you off. I just want to get to a few of our other callers. We're running out of time here. Uh, thank you for your call. Really appreciate it. Good information. Let's go to Toby in Vancouver. Hi, Toby. Yeah, hi, Jazz. How you doing? Good, thank you. What's on your mind? Yeah, so very similar to your previous caller, I also operate an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a, it's a space that's in my house that can never be a long-term rental. My, my, You know, it's kind of a nanny suite. There's no kitchen. My mom lives there part of the year. We have some other family that visits us. In the time that it's available, we rent it out on Airbnb, but we're not in any way denying anybody a long-term rental with our operation. Mm-hmm. And I feel it's really unfair to paint us with the same brush as the people who are operating, um, you know, 10 properties. I mean, let's go after those guys, but don't punish the guys like us that are, you know, really trying to keep up with the cost of living in the city. Yeah, do- Toby, thanks for your call. Uh, Councillor Fry, both uh, calls are actually really important. Like we do, the totally. headline always says the guy, with the super host with 10 suites, but there's a lot of folks like yeah, Toby there. That- and I appreciate that Matt and Toby both are kind of compliant with the spirit of our existing bylaw. And it's, it's, it's a suite within your home. It's a room within your home. It's not a standalone unit that you purchased for the sole purpose of Airbnb. So, so that's great. And I mean, I think what, and a thousand bucks is not nothing for sure, but I think where it becomes attractive to us as counselors is, is the notion that, that local taxpayers aren't actually paying for that. Yeah. So this is something that would be passed on to the consumer and you know, presumably it's going to be kind of inflating all the Airbnb prices across the board, presumably because they're all getting licenses, which we know isn't the case. But but really it would just be sort of like, you know, they'll add 10, 20 bucks to the cost of their Airbnb and they will cover that excess license cost. And, yeah. it's, and so it's passing on to the consumers who don't live in the city of Vancouver and who are paying tourist dollars anyway. So it seems a little bit less painful for us. And then it would allow us, in fact, to do better enforcement of the people who are really exploiting the rules. And it'll allow the Matt and Tobys uh, less kind of illegal, unethical competition. And they can run their Airbnbs as they are doing legally within the spirit of the bylaw. And they won't have to deal with these unscrupulous folks who are out there who are exploiting the bylaw. Well, it's going to be interesting between what you're saying and what the provincial government does in regards to their legislation that should come next month. It'd be very Hopefully this issue is dealt with over the next couple of months because something has to happen. And hopefully between municipal and provincial, we can actually solve this once and for all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Councillor Fry, thanks for your time. My, my pleasure, Jazz. Nice to see you. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Let's focus on another uh, story, a very important one, uh, regarding a gentleman by the name of Stuart Wilkinson. Jerry Mayor Judson joins us to tell his extraordinary story and, more importantly, what he's going to be doing this weekend. Mm-hmm. So he is a veteran. He fought with uh, British and NATO forces in Bosnia and Kosovo. And, uh, yeah, I mean, just a stunning story. He's 
But the, the reason we're talking about him is he's doing the Idaho Mountain Trail Ultra 100 Miler this Saturday to raise funds and awareness for hidden veterans. So it's the younger folks because there's something like a third of veterans who who uh, who come out of the military and they are between the ages of 25 and 34 or sorry, 25 and 54. So these hmm. are young people that still they 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 come that they go off. They have this experience that nobody else but them understands. And then mm-hmm. they come back and forever changed and you're 25 and you know or you're 35 and then and then what with the rest of your life like you need ongoing support and ongoing care because this is just yeah it's uh it's 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 a whole it's a whole thing in and of itself so that's like what of course legions are good for is that uh you know these folks can get together and like they can access services and all that good stuff but uh when i talked to Stuart wilkinson i asked him what the impetus was for this fundraising endeavor and I think I started trying to raise money for a, n- a number of years. We had some incredible support from the Royal Canadian Legion. I think what really turned me on to that was when I understood the statistics on suicide rates for vets. Canada, unfortunately, doesn't track veterans. They do a lot for veterans, but um, they definitely seem to see it as a job. Um, and then when you end that job, you're, you're just a regular civilian again, which I don't know of any other job that you can go away with. PTSD and you know trauma that kind of comes with that. That just you just get left behind for that. Yeah, the US. I was just looking up the stats this morning actually, and the latest ones they've got um, in 2020 was six over 6,000 veterans commit suicide a year, which works out to roughly 17 a day, which is heartbreaking. Well, more than heartbreaking, it's kind of unjust. There's a lot that needs to be done and and a light to be shone on. Um, these new veterans, I mean, the amount of veterans that come out of Afghanistan, which was the longest campaign Canada's been involved in since uh, World War II. What are we doing out there for them? The Legion does some amazing things, like they help with career transition. And um, if it's not for veteran housing, they've got like apartment kits that they're doing. They really, they've got programs. Uh, the Veterans Transition Network helps with trauma and, and PTSD and um, reintegrating into society it's hard it's um it obviously sits with me and this weekend um i'll be running um on saturday at 6 a.m september 16th i will uh, start my 100 mile mountain race so it's going to be very interesting i've got 36 hours to complete it they call it a postdoctoral mountain race so i don't know if they're going to give me a phd but um <laughs> they're, they're gonna, they're it's gonna a pretty a lot hard day <laughs> It's going to be a pretty hard day. Hopefully I'm good. I'm going through the tapering right now. So I'm a little twitchy, trying to keep myself busy. So I'm excited to get started. I just, I can't wait to wake up on Saturday morning and just stand on that start line. If someone wanted to go ahead and donate to your cause, can they do that online? Yeah, they can. Yeah, if they, they can go to um, ca, And if they... Scroll down, they'll see a, um, a lovely picture of me in front of, uh, on top of Seymour Mountain, actually, uh, and the Canadian flag just flying perfect um, in the photo that I captured. And it's endure 100 miles for the hidden veteran. And they can donate directly through the Legion. All funds go directly to the Legion um, and support veterans through research and treatment of trauma, career transition services, and, and for those experiencing homelessness as well which is a new, pro- a new program they started on, actually, which is the homeless situation is heartbreaking. But suddenly when you see a veteran on the streets as well, it 
hits a little harder. It's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. And the recognition that folks just need ongoing care is uh, something that I would love to help propagate in the public sort of mindset is that, yeah, it's it's not a nine to five view clock out of and you're unaffected by. It's a whole other a whole other thing entirely. So, yeah, all the kudos in the world. Good luck. Break. Well, don't break a leg. I feel like we don't say that in the in the marathon world, but good luck. Um, I Thank mean, you. He sounds like an amazing guy, first of all. Oh, absolutely. Super, yeah. super amazing guy. You know, I've been um, very fortunate uh, to be in and around military people uh, with my previous uh, life as a reporter, mm-hmm. frontline reporter. I've been to Afghanistan seven times. Seven times. So, you know, we used to go down patrol um, uh, with troops uh, in, oh, wow. in Afghanistan, in southern, uh, in southern Afghanistan, Kandahar. And, uh, you know, like a lot of Canadians, I, I haven't been around military people. Yeah. And uh, when you actually spend time with them, especially in a very intense time when you're out on patrol and because it's, it, and then you're sleeping out in the desert too, mm-hmm. and, you know, and these things can go for a long time. But they are some of the most amazing human beings I've ever had the privilege to meet. They're good, solid, everyday people. Uh, and uh, just a heart of gold. Absolutely. And it is... Uh, really troubling that we as Canadians uh, do not fundamentally understand the sacrifices they make in these war zones. Mm -hmm. And when they come back, uh, what they bring back with them. Yeah. And some people outwardly may look very healthy and, and, um, you know, go about their day, but the damage sometimes for a lot of folks is, 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 is permanent. Absolutely. And and it's really difficult. Yeah. And regardless, you just need, Access yeah. to ongoing care that is, you know, yeah, yeah, funded nicely. Exactly. Or, you know. No, exactly. And we don't do enough. And, and uh, you know, if that meant yeah, I got to pay uh, more taxes to make sure we have all the services available happily. for these, happily. And if for some reason we, we, we still struggle with that. And yeah. I mean, the amount of uh, people that have come out of Afghanistan, never mind physical injuries, but mm-hmm. the mental injuries, uh, we still don't do a good enough job. So I, hats off to Mr. Wilkinson there and the fact that he's uh, doing his part and absolutely. helping them out. So thank you so much for sharing that story. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. Thanks to him. Thank you to you, Stuart Wilkinson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now you're going to be back at 4.30. Oh, you bet you I am. You have the other assignment for today. Yes. And uh, some uh, singer... Yeah. Uh, put out an album uh, in 2008 yeah. called Makeout Music. Mm-hmm. You're going to review it. That certain somebody was an activist by the name of David Eby. David Eby. It's almost, I'm too late for the 15 year anniversary of this album drop, but uh, 15 <laughs> years on, I'm reviewing it. I've did a fulsome review and I'm very excited to share it with you later. I, I, am, I really want to hear that. And for the record, folks, we paid top dollars, $5 to $5 down. on Bandcamp. You're welcome, so, Premier Eby. Yeah, we paid full price. So he's getting full royalties. <laughs> and uh, we just wanted the Premier to know that. Just in Can't case. buy it honestly. <laughs> Just in case he's looking for some Spotify money, it's yeah, coming. It's, it's coming. Right. It's coming your way. <laughs> Jerry, thank you. Thank you. This week, we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about international students. I mean, you walk anywhere in the Lower Mainland, whether it's downtown or a suburban shopping mall, you go to the food court, you see so many international students working behind the counter, gas stations, uh, everywhere uh, you see international students. Uh, and they certainly are having an impact on our economy. As I've said earlier, t- t- this year, over 900,000 international students are expected to arrive uh, in uh, in Canada, and they will spend between 20 to $30 billion. Uh, Ten years ago, about 230,000. We were averaging about 230,000 students, and they're spending about $8 billion. So you've seen a significant increase in international student population. That's having an impact on our 
post-secondary institutions. Um, because international students pay more, of course, that means uh, those schools are relying on those fees more and more to a subsidize domestic students, or in some cases, the school itself, uh, you know, they, they need those dollars. In Ontario, uh, last week, we learned that for the first time in that province's history, international students will pump the same amount of dollars into their college system as much as the provincial government. We're not there yet. I think we're around uh, 25 to 32%. We hover around there. We're not there, but we're getting there. Uh, And many have said uh, that if the Liberal government were to cut back on international students, they've certainly hinted at that, including Sean Fraser, the Housing Minister, uh, Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc, and Immigration Minister Mark Miller. If you do so, that is going to impact the bottom line of a lot of colleges who have become so reliant on international students. Well, all this week we've had our next guest join us and could be knowledgeable about the about the issue and uh, continues to do a lot of research on the issue as well. His name is Barge Dahan. He's a co-founder and director of the Canada India Education Society. Barge, thank you for coming by once again. Good to be here with you. Yeah, it's we were going to do one segment. Here we are uh, once again chatting. Now, we've talked about colleges and their reliance, uh, students and what they pay. But one of the things we haven't talked about is employment. Now, these students... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, when the rules have now changed, but initially you could be an international student, pay those fees, and you could still work 20 hours a week maximum. That's correct. Prior to COVID, it was 20 hours per week that international students could work. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, they could only work on campus. So then after COVID, it was all opened up so students can work anywhere up to 40 hours. Up to 40 hours. Wow. Um, do you think that changes the very nature of international students? Are they here for an education? Are they here to eventually become permanent residents or citizens here? And that and, and that's why they're coming, plus working 40 hours a week. There's been a very significant shift in the type of international students who are coming into Canada and British Columbia now. Uh, going back about three years ago, many were coming into our publicly funded institutions, our universities and colleges, mm-hmm. sincerely wanting to be educated, and with the hope that they will become permanent residents. In the last two years, it's more the private colleges that are enrolling large numbers of international students, and they're coming primarily to work, and through work, they're hoping that someone will sponsor them through the labor market impact assessment where an employer can hire foreign students or foreign workers Mm -hmm. and then get them through the process for PR. That is what is going on. Uh, so it's uh, it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. I think this well-intentioned international education policy that we had was good. Now we're dealing with unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that it's now corrupt, corruption at all levels. Mm-hmm. It's become a nexus between uh, recruiters, international recruiters in Canada and overseas, Mm -hmm. immigration consultants, notary publics, rogue employers, and these private institutions, there are almost 240 of them. All they have to do is offer a six-month teaching program, and then these students get a study permit from the federal government. Hmm. And a lot of those students may complete their six-month course, then they're working, many don't complete, and then they enter into the labor market. So uh, if yours truly here set up uh, a college, I call it, uh, you know, I just I call it downtown Vancouver College, would it be difficult for me to set up a college? 
private college? Well, you still have to go through the approval process. That approval is done through the BC government, mm-hmm. the Private Institutions Act. The, 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 uh, what, what a lot of these private institutions are looking for mm-hmm. is that designated learning institute number from the provincial governments. It's the provincial governments that give that or the, our territorial governments. Then they're allowed to enroll students from overseas. But from a regulatory framework, what the fees are, how many students they can enroll, there is no control. Um, now, when uh, these schools are set up then, uh, you know, you, as you say, you can work uh, as well. Uh, and the schools themselves, and we'll get to the work for a second, the schools themselves, are they generally owned and operated by local people or, or are they uh, sort of part of a chain? Are they international? Some, some of them are locally owned. I would say many of them are. Some are now being purchased by overseas investors who have schools in uh, home countries and they're trying to now connect a school in a home country and a school in Canada. Money being made both ways. Some, are, uh, some have multiple campuses. There are a number of uh, private schools, so-called colleges, I would say, mm-hmm. training institutes. There are multiple campuses throughout Metro Vancouver. You go to, onto their websites, you can't figure out what they're going to charge for what program. So there's zero accountability. Hmm. And I think the, the, where I talk about corruption here is that in Canada f- over the last 12 years, the number of private training institutes have grown phenomenally. Mm-hmm. There are 240-some-odd in British Columbia. There are another 400-some-odd in, in Ontario. And they are the ones that are doing the heavy recruiting. Mm-hmm. And no one is talking about that part. We're only talking about the publicly funded institutions or universities and colleges, the fee structures that they charge. So I just want to touch on you saying that there are international buyers as well. So you could be in, uh, recruiting students in India, and that may be your head office, and trying to convince them to come to Vancouver to learn, uh, assuming that they can get uh, their PR one day. So you've got that entire pipeline of access to students, recruitment of students, getting to live here, charge them $20,000 a year, $30,000 a year. And it's all just, it's circular then, right? You, you control all the sort of levers and routes to Canada. It is circular. It's uh, well-coordinated. There are many, many people that are involved in this. There, there's also an informal network and a formal network, and the governments here, all levels of governments, do not have um, enough resources to police, to monitor, to track. Uh, Is the federal government tracking these students from overseas with study permits? Where are they studying? Do they leave after their study permits expire? And I would argue vast majority of them do not leave. They're in the underground economy mm-hmm. and rogue employers are involved. Letters of employment are being sold for 500 to 5,000. Students are going into some rogue employers where they're working. Employers saying we'll get a labor market impact assessment from the federal government, which allow us to hire foreign workers. Then we'll take you to the P- those spots are being sold for $50,000 throughout oh. the country. 
for just joining us. We are speaking to Baraj Dahan, co-founder and director of the Canada India Education Society. We're talking about international students. We've been talking about international students all week. Uh, today's focus is more so just on uh, employers, rogue employers, as Baraj uh, called them, but the nexus between employers, notaries, immigration consultants, even um, you know recruiters from abroad. Uh, so call us on the open line. Love your thoughts on what we need to be doing with international students in this country. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Uh, let's go to Raj in Surrey. Hi, Raj. Hi, Jez. Um, I have a couple of comments to make on the international students. Mm-hmm. The first one is the sco- the private colleges that bring the students here. We actually know someone that came in from India, went to registered with a private college, and then when he came to Canada, he wanted to move colleges mm-hmm. to a different one. Uh, he paid $13,000 tuition fees just at the first college, when he told them that he's deciding to move, they did not refund a penny. And their citation, uh, what they tried to tell him was, it was the provincial government's legislation that's protecting them from returning that money. So they took $13,000 and gave his seat to another student, probably, so that's $26,000 they've made in one semester. Wow. And there's no, I mean, I'm surprised that there wouldn't be some accountability for that. I mean, uh, you know, you'd want to protect, uh, you don't want the, the college to be abused either. But I, to say the provincial legislation protects them from not returning dollars is absolutely ridiculous. I, 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 he, can the person go to their MLA or member of parliament? Uh, did they do anything like that? They didn't. I personally have email exchanges with the school themselves. But there is a point where you have had email exchanges and then you give up. So this individual just gave up and he said, you know, I'll just forget about it. He still moves colleges. Um, You know, the only reason was he saved some time in his studies with the structure of a different school. Mm. He still went on his study permit, uh, you know, and is currently studying. So it wasn't like it was sort of like a fraud kind of thing where he just came to Canada on his study permit. He just continued with updating his status with Immigration Canada. So it is unfortunate students are being taken advantage by these private institutions. Yeah, Raj, thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's one where you just think of common sense and get some money back. But classic example of of where I think a lot of students, especially when you're new to a country, you don't know where to turn, where to go. Uh, Let's go to Nick in Surrey. Hi, Nick. Hi. I had a couple of comments and maybe a question here. My concern is that all these foreign students are coming. Great opportunities for education. But it's at the expense of our children that cannot get seats in educational facilities anymore. And these third parties or these employers that are basically getting paid by the students to work are essentially taking jobs away from our students and senior citizens that cannot get these side-by-side or part-time jobs. The institutions, like our politicians, are being bought out by foreign interests and everybody's profiting off the back of regular Canadians and taking away opportunities from regular people that are working in this country. I can't afford to send my kid to a foreign country for school. And therefore, what do I do? Yeah, Nick, thanks you for your call. I mean, first of all, a lot of these people that are coming are not rich. They're, they they are mortgaging everything to get here. Um, I don't think they're taking spaces. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Barch. They're not taking spaces from domestic students. In fact, they are paying so much it subsidizes the domestic students. Not, the, the increases in their tuition aren't uh, significant or at least haven't been significant. Um, but it does speak to our public institutions relying on increasingly that international student's tuition to pay for the system itself. You're absolutely right. It's the international students that are paying a larger portion of the tuition fees to our public institution. That's happening. 
Then there's the private ones that I keep talking about. Yeah. That is, that is where the problem lies. And what we've seen is, I think it's been a consistent, deliberate privatization of our post-secondary education. It's a provincial responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's what two or three like Ontario and BC have been doing since the last 15 years. And, uh, and so, so one of the unintended consequences of this right now is that our public institutions are being beaten up on because now people are finding out, look at the, the, the amount of tuition fee they're charging international students, up to 10 times what the domestic students are paying. And you and I, as well as vast majority of Canadians, universities and colleges were built on our tax dollars. Yeah. And today, the universities and, and colleges are at risk in the future. Just joining us, we are speaking to Baraj Dahan, co-founder and director of the Canada-India Education Society. We're talking about international students uh, actually being taken advantage of in many cases, especially with uh, some rogue employers. Uh, we were planning to wrap up the old segment at uh, right before the 4.30 news, but a lot of calls on this issue. Uh, I know, George, you've been uh, hanging on through the news. I appreciate your patience. What's on your mind? Yeah, I would like to ask Bart if he agrees with me that the liberals, the federal liberals, know exactly what is going on. They actually even encourage it because it is a proven fact, like me as an immigrant that came here many years ago, legally, um, that anyone who gets a visa from the government in power tends to vote for the government in power. So if they are making it easier for them to break the law but stay here, etc., etc., this is a guaranteed vote for them. Now, if the conservatives were to ask questions and criticize this, they would immediately attack them as racist. What do you think, Bart? George, uh, thanks for your call. Uh, he's got a point. I mean, many people, I've certainly have been saying, looking like in the last three or four years of all the international students that have come here, it's a guaranteed base for the Federal Liberal Party for a generation or two moving forward. I, I think the caller is uh, right. I think there has been a serious political consideration in terms of opening up more and more students to come into, into Canada. Uh, the point being is, uh, what is our political consideration? One is our Canadian GDP was not growing. It's stagnant. So this $30 billion is probably 2% uh, to the GDP increase. Okay? Mm. So that, that's one political consideration. The other thing is the, the privatization that's going on across the country in a post-secondary education. Mm-hmm. So there is also a political intention there. And then the, I, I personally have a question. Why in the last year and a half, the number, the percentage of international students coming from India has now exceeded 40% of all, all mm-hmm. international students in the country? Is there political intention behind that? And thinking that those, a lot of them are coming from North India, Punjab specifically, that they eventually would be long-term federal liberal voters, uh, especially in Southern Ontario and and, uh, Calgary, Edmonton, and of course here in the Metro Vancouver area. That is certainly one philosophy, one uh, assertion many people have made. In regards, I want to get back to the employers for a second. So if I'm hired as an international student, and it is a rogue employer in the sense that you know, we'll pay you $3,000 a month, Jazz. Welcome to Canada, uh, 40 hours a week. Oh, by the way, uh, you're going to have to give us back $1,000 of that in cash uh, because we're going to help you uh, uh, sort of move forward in your journey to becoming a permanent resident. Is that fair comment that some of these employers are doing that? 
that's uh, that's happening a lot. So a student goes looking for a job. Yeah. They're legally allowed to work now. Yeah. And then they go to an employer who says, yeah, I'll hire you. I'll pay you this and you pay me a certain amount back in cash. And then I'll apply for a labor market impact assessment, mm-hmm. which is a federal government process for Canadian employers who cannot find Canadian employees so that they can recruit now internationally. So that's the promise. And for that promise, Mm -hmm. there's also a fee involved. And that fee is up to $50,000. And some students and their families are willing to pay for it because their dream is to become a permanent resident. So this is predominantly happening for those kids that are going through private schools. So every step of the way of the immigration process, there is a transaction that will get you to the next step or will attempt to get you to the next step. But there's a cost to that, and you're going to pay me under the table, whatever that may be. And everybody knows that. I would argue mm-hmm. that many of the international students, their families, the families who send them here, know that it's a transactional relationship, and it is a nexus today, and they are willing participants in this. Uh, let's go to Adam in Langley. Hi, Adam. Hey, Jen. What a great conversation. Thanks for hearing all the sides to this. Um, my perspective might be a little bit different than others. Um, so hear me out on this. I look at this, you know, I think immigration is, you know, we, you've talked about it before. It's essential to the growth and success of our country. That's just statistically true. Um, where I think maybe a little bit differently is my concern with, with it is the role of every government, similar to the role of any CEO, is to take care of their business, their country, make it as good as they can make it. Coca-Cola doesn't care about Pepsi. Canada needs to make sure that what we are doing is strengthening our country. Um, my concern is that we're educating um, a lot of people who are coming to our country, which is fantastic, but then they're, if, if they're leaving again. So, for example, I'll use China as the example. Mm-hmm. We know politically they're not our greatest ally, let's be honest. So are we educating people just to send them back with the skills that we've created to a, a place that's not going to be investing? I think there should be some sort of commitment period of time that you need to stay and, and give back to the country to get your education from. Yeah, and that's a good point, Adam. Uh, I would argue that most probably stay, uh, or a good chunk of them, and I think that's the what past history has told us, but when you look at these private schools that Brad, you're talking about, this is strictly for uh, your permanent residency, and those ed- the education they're getting, I'm not even sure it's worth much. Not all, not all, not all schools, mind you, but in, in, in a lot of cases, it ain't worth much. Well, there's a statistic that's put out there by, by the government, by others as well, that over the last 10 years, only three out of 10 international students have got permanent residency. Okay, they are going back then. Well, we don't know. Hmm. Uh, some are going back, but many are staying here in a roundabout way. Okay. So without the degree or without whatever, whatever they've studied, they're not using it. It's... it's a part, to them, it's a step towards the permanent residency is what they care about, not the education per se. Well, I mean, the governments can have resources to track international students, how many stay, how many get permanent residency, what kind of work they're getting. Yeah. But that data, to my knowledge, is not available. Uh, uh, Jason, you've been uh, hanging on. we got about 30 seconds. What's on your mind? GIBT. Sorry, could you repeat that they, again? Yeah, CIBT. They're one of the big 
people that are behind the scenes that are running the industry in Canada. You're talking about private schools? Private schools. They are the private school. They are the, uh, they own Sprott Shaw. And in their organization, they probably have 1,500 units, like apartment apartment rooms, for foreign students only. Jason, I appreciate your call. I appreciate your call, but I'm not going to be uh, making any allegations against any private school unless there's specific proof. I understand uh, some of them are very well known, uh, but we're not going to make allegations unless we have proof. So uh, I do appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Uh, Barge, we got 30 seconds in a very short way. What are the two or three bullet points you would want to see legislators bring in to fix this? Regulate. Bring in regulations on fees that right now there's no regulation. So the maximum amount set. Maximum amount set. Okay. That would be one of them. Yeah. Set limits on number of international students coming into the country. And that's a federal responsibility. Set targets or limits on source countries. Don't have one country sending, you know, uh, adding up to 40% or plus of Mm -hmm. the international students in the country. There's no diversity in the classrooms. You can go to some of our community colleges, which are public. All the classrooms are full with students only from one country. Barge, thank you so much for your time. We've run out of time. Uh, may have you back soon on this one. There's so many different uh, ways to go on this issue. Really, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me, Jazz. You're listening to the soothing sounds of artist David Evie. Yes, well, the artist is uh, is World of Science from their uh, debut and only, unfortunately, album, Make Out Music. However, I'm not even dunking on it because I'm not even making fun uh, because it's, I, I think it's great. I like it a lot. We're going to keep it going while I give this little album review, if so you want. So before you start, we're, yes. I'm joined by Cherry Mary Johnson. You jumped right in. <laughs> so sorry. She's excited. No, I'm not really at all. excited. I know you are. So... Uh, Uh, We had found out uh, that David Eby had put out an album in 2008, Mm -hmm. and uh, Jerry and I were talking this morning. I said, why don't you give us a a review of the album, right? Yes, and I was thrilled. And so, like, this came out in 2008, and what's the album called again? The album is called Make Out Music. Ah, Mm -hmm. okay. And uh, it's it's, it's cute. It's like, the theme, lyrically, is nostalgia for, you know, maybe when you were a teenager, right? And I was a teenager in 2008, not to date myself, I'm so sorry, (laughs) but uh, I I was. And I was like, okay, this it, it does. It lyrically it makes me nostalgic. So for context, right? David Eby, when he contributed to this album, he is uh, vocals, he is songwriting, and he is guitar. And uh, he was only 32 years old. He oh, had okay. just sought his first city council nomination. Um, oh, okay. Did not get it, but that was the later. That's fine. Who needs it? Yeah. Um, and so the album begins. I liked it a lot. It begins with a song called You're So Handsome. Um, it's really cool bass in it. It's uh, stripped down. It's very neat. And then the synthesizer comes in and that sets it apart from other 2008 indie rock. Um, it put me in mind of, are you familiar? This is maybe a long shot. Are you familiar with the Chemical Brothers? Yes. Okay, perfect. Okay, yeah. It made me think of their 2007 album, We Are The Night, which is, oh, okay. uh, yeah, it's like my favorite electronica album. So there's like shades of that in there. I was like, I didn't expect that. Uh-huh. Uh, vocally, he kind of puts me in mind of Stuart Murdoch from Bell and Sebastian. So like the male voice in Bell and uh-huh. Sebastian. And we also have amazing vocals from uh, Veronica Rosos. Also, there's so there's male and female vocals. There's choir vocals in some of it. It's all really good, man. I have almost not a singular bad thing to say about this album, but uh, there's a track you liked in particular, right? Yeah, I liked the one uh, Suburban Royalty. 
I, uh, I, it, sounded, it was very soothing. I didn't hear yes. all of it. The bit that I heard, I really liked. And uh, you know, I was I was because I, I, he was an activist at that time too, yeah. right? Like he's he was out protesting the downtown east side, giving legal advice to activists and oh. and residents down there. Um, so it's very interesting. I think it's all part and parcel of the growth of David Eby. Absolutely. Can we play some of it? Oh yeah, let's. Uh, yeah, can we can we hear some of suburban royalty? Is it royalty you want, Victoria? Let's make our parents talk. Let's make them shake their heads. Queen can be a girl. Next time we get him in here, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to have to play some of this for him. Yes, you are. What I like, too, is like, there's, it's just, obviously, it's David Eby. There's so much public record of him speaking. So I'm like, of course, yeah, that's David Eby. <laughs> it's so cool. Apparently, he was in another band. So after um, after these guys stopped recording albums, then he was in another band called Ladner. But Ladner never got to uh, never got to record any, any of the get to record an EP. But yeah, they're a band called Ladner. They could have been like right up there with Chilliwack. <laughs> Come on. So honestly, I'm going to say, right? It's fat. I've been on a, just a deep dive, a rabbit hole, on just the weirdest part of the internet. But uh, I think overall, I'm, I'm going to give this one a seven out of 10. It was my favorite so listen in a while. Let's say if you're, let's say imbibing uh, uh, a little bit of cannabis. Sure. If you were like Jimmy Buffeting, like my gummy just kicked in. Yeah. yeah. Would this be the music? you? Because it sounds like this is the kind of music you'd listen to. I will, I'll have to do some R&D on you on that for you, Jazz. And Could I'll you? let you know. Let me, if you do. Oh, it'll put me out significantly but uh, <laughs> no that's that's my plan it, for the weekend it, i'm not going to encourage it but if you if you do uh do share it with us I absolutely would love, I would love <laughs> my odyssey my david eb odyssey with makeout music uh, prime minister justin trudeau announced that ottawa is removing the gst on construction on new rental apartment buildings uh, the liberals originally promised to remove the federal tax on rental construction during the 2015 election campaign it would lower the cost of labor and materials for home builders uh, and is one of the components of an affordability announcement uh, that prime minister trudeau made earlier today joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the removal of the gst on construction of new rental apartment buildings is michael geller he's president of the geller group he's an architect planner and a real estate consultant michael thank you for joining us today it's going to reduce the cost of building rental units by about 5%. Now, some people will say that's not that significant. I mean, if rents are reduced 5%, is that, you know, we need to reduce them a lot more than that. But we might be able to because the one thing this will do, in my opinion, is encourage developers who are currently building condominiums to build rental projects. A number of people resented building rental and having to pay the GST, which is not applicable to condominiums. So that's certainly one additional benefit by removing the GST. Hmm. Uh, What has, beyond just the GST, what has held developers back from building rental units in your mind? When you look at the cost of building a rental unit... And then you look at what rents can be charged. In many instances, the rents that could be charged are less than the economic rent of building that rental unit. It was really only when the government started to offer incentives, including uh, 
the density bonuses, such as Vancouver with the what they call the short-term rental program. And when interest rates came down from 5 6% to 2 3%, that's what made it financially feasible for the first time in about 20 years to build rental. So reducing the cost is definitely going to have some benefit, but it isn't going to have the benefit that most people are hoping for, for reasons we can also discuss. What else does the government need to do to drive those costs down to get more rentals built? I just came from a lunch with a company that I advise that installs retractable glass panels on windows, on balconies. And uh, they were mentioning they were finalizing a contract for a new project in Burnaby. The installation will occur in 2027, four years from now. Now, this is a building that has a development permit approved, but it still needs to get a building permit. It still needs to go out to tender, and it needs to be built. And that's taking four years. Now, most people don't believe this, but this is, in fact, the reality. And so we need to come up with ways to accelerate both that approval and construction process. And uh, it's a challenge, but at least we're talking about it. So as much as Prime Minister Trudeau may make these announcements, or Premier David Eby, um, what can we do to spur greater efficiency then, one would argue, at the municipal level, because that's where one would argue the bottleneck truly is. There's certainly a major bottleneck. Um, I was talking to an architect this morning. We're about to submit a development permit, and uh, my client said, oh, the planner has told us they'll be able to approve the permit in six months. And the architect said, oh, that's terrific. I said, are you being facetious? No, he said, six months is really good. I said, six months is outrageous. And so if any of the planners in the district in North Vancouver are listening to this, six months is much too long to approve a development permit. Mm. But the reality is it has been taking even longer than that, Jazz, in many municipalities. We didn't get into this housing challenge today or even five years ago. I mean, this is one would argue, uh, multi-generational to get to this point where we're we're lacking supply. Um, In regards to actually, you know, turbocharging rentals to get built, um, what other things does a federal government need to do broadly in regards to driving change? Because one could argue in the early 70s, they were well entrenched in the housing market in regards to driving policy that actually led to a lot of housing getting built on the rental side and on the affordable side. What, does that, what else do they need to do on the policy side to get this going? Okay, well, that's an excellent question. The first thing is even if we can see a lot more market rental built and built quick, approved and built quickly, mm. that's still going to be too expensive for most people who are listening to us right now. So we need to see the government get back into subsidizing nonprofit projects, nonprofit co-ops. When I in the 70s, I was working with CMHC overseeing those programs. We definitely need to get back to that. The other thing, though, we need to do: the federal government should reconsider 
bringing back programs like the MER program, the multiple unit residential building program that encouraged doctors and dentists and others to invest in rental housing. And the irony is very often those projects were not economically viable either, but because of the tax write-offs that the investors could get, a lot of rental units were built. A similar program was in place in the 60s. That's when a lot of those little apartment buildings we see all over Metro Vancouver were built. So the removal of the GST is great, but there's definitely a need for more nonprofit housing. And I think the government needs to look at bringing back some of these programs that incented investors to put more money into rental housing. Um, in, in regards to uh, the ability to build more housing, I, I have a CMHC report uh, before me uh, talking about housing shortages in Canada. And what they were saying is uh, uh, they had projected last year that by 2030, there would be 18.6 million, million housing units in Canada, 18.6. Now they're projecting 18.2 million uh, units. Uh, so they've, they've updated their numbers. And a lot of that ha- has gotten to, got to do with the fact that materials have gotten more expensive, labor is in short supply, and it's hard to get financing for construction. Uh, you know, as much as our political leaders make these announcements, just like Mr. Trudeau did today, looks like market forces are also part of the challenge in regards to just getting these things done. Yes. And I, I was speaking to another reporter this morning, and I mentioned to him that the one thing we're not talking enough about is the fact that there simply isn't the capacity in the construction industry to build all the homes that the government is promising, and even the municipalities are saying we need. There's a problem that a lot of people in the construction industry are older and they're retiring. And while we definitely need to bring in a lot more immigrants who have skills that can be applied to the construction industry, at the moment that's not really happening. So hopefully that is going to get more attention. And, uh, you know, the other side of it is just the schools that teach people how to learn about the construction industry. They're not taking in enough students, and uh, we need to do that. The reality is, even if interest rates came down, and even if approvals were granted faster, there simply aren't enough contractors out there to build the housing. And if you want proof of that, just look at how the cost estimate for that new hospital in Surrey ballooned. I mean, in a matter of a year, it seemed to go up almost a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And that's very much a function of just how much it's costing to build because of shortage of trained labor. Yeah, that says a lot, that's for sure. Michael, uh, as always, really enjoy our conversation. Thank you for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for your interest. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.